Welcome to this week's podcast of The Uneven Road with Dr. Bill Hennessy. As leaders, not all of us are called to the easy places. The roads we're called to travel can be really uneven. Building on his rich experience as a pastor, missionary, educator, and leadership coach, Bill brings encouragement, conversation, and new ideas to help you better communicate Christ's hope to the people you are called to serve. Well, happy Friday, everybody. This is Dr. Bill Hennessy with The Uneven Road, and I'm here today with Russ Tuttle, who is the president of the Stop Trafficking Project. Uh, his mission is to combat human trafficking. He's based out of the uh, greater Kansas City area, reaches out to the Midwest, but also has outreach in India, and he's working with Awareness KC to try and stem the tide of human trafficking in that region. So, Russ, it's great to have you with us, and uh, you have kind of an unusual calling. Yeah, you know, so my background is I grew up in India as a missionary kid and didn't really sense a call to full-time ministry when I came back home to the United States to go to college. I actually thought I was going to be an architect and the Bible school I was attending, I was three weeks into my freshman year, and I don't even remember who was speaking or what the altar response was, but it was one of those generic, hey, if you want to give your all to God and let him use you as you see fit, then come on down here. And I went down because that was me, even though I hadn't had a calling to ministry. And God gave me a very vivid call to ministry for 90 minutes. I just wept. And in my, I actually had what I would call a vision for 90 minutes, I saw lines of people walking past me. I was standing between a huge doorway right in the frame. And I was waving people through this massive door with urgency. And all I could see was with clarity, their eyes. I could see people from every walk, every background And while their bodies were clearly walking, that was not clear. What was clear was their eyes. So my parents were in India as missionaries. I was in Seattle, Kirkland, Washington area um, in college. And so in those days, the way you communicated to India was you actually wrote a letter and licked the stamp and mailed it. And it took about six weeks to get there. And um, you got a response back six weeks later, maybe seven weeks later. And so I told my parents, I'm called to ministry and it started a journey where I figured because of all the years I'd lived in India that I automatically mean God must want me to go back to India to be a missionary. That has to be it because I speak the language. I know the culture leadership there wants me to come back. And so I, God, thank you for calling me back to India. And, and yes, so won't bore you with the details. That wasn't his plan. <laughs> and so did, did several, did a couple decades of um, different, different ministry and churches and things and, and uh, had, had, uh, all different kinds of experiences, everything from working with youth to adults to um, every different kind of leader you can work with, every different kind of mentor, some good, some bad, some indifferent, all those things. And then then I find myself in 2009 with this sense of just a complete different something was about to happen. And we couldn't quite figure it out. My wife and I were trying to go, what's God doing? And and thought, well, maybe, maybe now this is the release. Maybe now this is India again after all these years. And sensed in my heart that that wasn't it, but wasn't sure. We had had some friends come visit and said, you know, Russ, I just really been feeling like you're, you're about to launch into a new ministry, something you've never dreamt of before. And it's going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done. And nobody's going to understand it or why you're doing it. And I was like, well, I don't want to talk to you about this. What kind of a friend are you? Like, take my hamburger back. I shouldn't have barbecued you a burger. Like, what kind of a word is that? And and yet that was exactly the journey that started. And really what happened was an awareness came um, after years of pastoral ministry to kind of grasp a concept of there's something more and that ministry is not just always a title in a church. And all of a sudden began this realization of um, there's something more. And so I was, I was attending a leadership conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and Francis Chan was the keynote speaker. And before he spoke, he had his daughter come out and play piano. And she played her 
piano and she got done and everybody clapped because it's Francis Chan's daughter. And besides, she was a great piano player. But then he stopped and he said, I've just become recently aware that there's a tragic reality happening right here in the United States of America where American kids are being sold for sexual purposes against their will. Mm. And all the air got sucked out of Gwinnett Arena in Atlanta, Georgia. And I literally walked out of that arena and I went and called my wife and I said, I think I know what we're supposed to do. And it resonated with her. And so long story short, within six weeks, um, we made a huge change and launched out and started a nonprofit. You know, what's interesting is um, I'm certainly uh, not trying to make any type connections with this biblical character, but I, I remember when Abram was called to leave uh, the writer of Hebrews gives them a powerful commentary about that. And, and in the new living translation version, it says he, he went without knowing where he was going. He had a general idea and some general direction, but he didn't know exactly where he was going. And this is really what we have found in our ministry when we launched back in 2009 to begin to combat this issue that we didn't even really understand because I was, I had, a, I had a great concept and understanding from all the years I lived in India that, yeah, the human trafficking is a real thing. And then I was also like probably most Americans would think, okay, it happens in exotic countries over there. Or we understand that the issue of human trafficking and particularly sex trafficking of children, that there's an issue on the southern border where kids are coming across. And it's a way to get them in. But I hadn't really stopped and considered the fact that this happens right here in the United States of America with kids that our kids play soccer with, that they go to school with in, in our churches. So we stepped out in faith and we, we, we didn't really know where we were going. My friend has said, you're going to kind of step out and do this great thing. And, and I, it was almost kind of like, you know, um, when God called Abram, hey, Abram, you know, I know you're 75 years old and you, know, you get a little bit set in your ways, but I've got this great thing, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, but there's going to be this amazing promise. And, um, you know, by the way, the way it's going to happen, you're going to have to have a son, but you don't have one. I mean, all these crazy. And, but what did Abram do? He, he, he went not knowing where he was going so that we really felt like that's we were launching out. So we launched out. Within two months, I was convinced, number one, either it was the pepperoni pizza that had spoken to me and not God, or we were in for the ride of our lives because absolutely every attack that you could comprehend um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, literally to the house we lived in, the foundation collapsed. Mm. Everything you could imagine as we launched into this new ministry. And so it was kind of like either I've completely missed it. Or this is, we're about to step into something so far beyond anything we can understand. And that's really what's happened. Um, I'm very type A personality. And a couple of the hardest years of my life was to really just dig in and network and have the most frustrating meetings possible with church leaders and secular leaders of every level to try to see if anybody's really paying attention to this issue of what we now call domestic minor sex trafficking, which is American kids protected by American law being brutally exploited in the most nefarious ways possible for sexual purposes. And so diving into that began to realize and understand we have an issue. So I figured if I'm going to, if, if I, if we're going to launch into this from a Christ center perspective, I better know what I'm talking about. And about two months into launching this, I was ready to quit. I really was because the attacks that came were just so overwhelming. I was like, I, I really don't want to deal with this. And it's not cohesive for our family. I don't know how we're going to pay any bills. I mean, on and on, all these things went. And then out of all places, every year, the Department of Justice produces what's called the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons Report. They rate every single country all around the world on a tier system, basing them how they are doing in the role of human trafficking. And I'd never seen this report before. But every single year, I have all the copies, the front cover every single year of this trafficking in persons report, the front cover is all you see are four sets of different eyes. And it took me back to my original calling to ministry way back three weeks into a freshman year at Northwest College, now known as Northwest University. I can still point to the place on the front pew where I cried for hours and stained that that 
bench. And all of a sudden, everything came full circle. I was like, this, we can't quit this. And every single year around June or July, they released this report. And every single year, it's a new set of eyes. And all you see is the bridge of a nose and set of eyes with absolute clarity. So that's been, we've been at this now 10 years. This is 2019. We launched in 2009, um, specifically to combat domestic matter sex trafficking. So, so in my research and, and, and understanding, how are, how are people dealing with from a Christ center perspective? And most people are wanting to start a home. Let's start a home. Let's bring victims in. My wife and I, we knew that is not our calling. That is not my skill set. That is not my personality. And so as we began to do a deep dive into these realities, we began to realize that, listen, American kids are targets by people because tragically, sex trafficking of children in America that we refer to legally as domestic minor sex trafficking. The reason for that is because demand to buy kids for sexual purposes is high. We relocated from... Washington State years ago, moved to Kansas City area. And in 2013, Arizona State University conducted a very in-depth research study on 15 cities across America. And Kansas City was one of them. And what they did was they were looking to see how many people in a particular city are online looking to find people to purchase sex from. And Arizona State University's 2013 study ran decoy ads online advertising people to be sold for sexual purposes with a strong focus on we're selling minors. What they found through this study based on people responding and the analytics of this were very, very deep. They, they could tell if someone called from a cell phone, what kind of phone it was, if they text messaged, if they responded through an ad, what they, they responded online through a, an email or all these, all the analytics. And what they found was that in a short time period, 14.5% of the male population over the age of 18 in Kansas City, Missouri, was online looking to purchase sex. So that number represents over 106,000 men in a short time period. Spoke to the demand. Demand is driven by addiction to pornography. We have an absolute tsunami crisis happening in our country today of people addicted to pornography and the numbers inside the church and outside the church tragically don't look that different. So what we have found is that demand is high. Increasingly the images of pornography online or of younger and younger children, increasingly almost on a daily basis, we see high profile people being caught and arrested for child pornography issues and one of the challenges that this, this comes to is, is, is every time I stand up to speak about this issue, I sense the spiritual warfare because we're going against a countercultural, it's a countercultural message every time we stand to speak. So we understand um, that we now have domestic minor sex trafficking where American kids are being sold for nefarious purposes, bought and sold. The reason for that is because demand is high. And from a scriptural and biblical and Christ-centered perspective, we understand ultimately this issue is sin. Ultimately, we're dealing with the depravity of mankind to do the kinds of things that they are doing to children at younger and younger and younger ages. Some of the names of websites that I could name where people go and they file share horrific images of what they're doing to infants and on and on it goes. It can only be described as Romans talks about the depravity of mankind. So when we step into the most secular settings possible to deal with these issues, and that deals with perhaps I'm standing in front of a Senate hearing in the state of Missouri testifying about why pornography should be declared a public health crisis, or whether I'm in a public school setting talking to several hundred students about the role of social media in their exploitation, or whether I'm training law enforcement professionals of what they need to look for or medical professionals, or maybe I'm standing in a church on a Sunday morning delivering a biblically-based message of encouragement and yet also opening their eyes to the role that pornography plays in the exploitation of vulnerability of our students that leads them sometimes into the worst-case scenarios of domestic minor sex trafficking where kids are victims. All these things can become so overwhelming that sometimes you just go, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. 
And then I think about Abraham 25 years after God said, go, I'm not going to really tell you where you're going, but it's going to be amazing. And Abraham goes over 25 years and he's now had the name changed from Abram to Abraham. And now God says, kill, kill the promise, kill your promise, kill, kill your only son, Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice to me. And one of the things that my wife and I have found over the 10 years of what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice for this calling? Because it's a tremendously unique calling. It's an overwhelming calling. It's a calling where um, similar to years in pastoral ministry, when you got done with the busyness of Sunday day and evening ministry, you want to resign on Monday morning and quit. And then you go to your staff meeting and you start over and you get re-energized. Those moments that in, in this ministry were called to my home office out of my basement, anywhere that there's a computer or laptop or coffee shop, that's your office because we're surrounded by people in need constantly. And we've decided, we've made a, a specific decision not to establish brick and mortar offices, not to establish brick and mortar um, places where people would gather and congregate because those resources need to be put into people where their actual literal, physical, tangible needs can be met in the immediacy of a moment. And sometimes that's as simple as we have to pay for a bus ride to get a young 12-year-old girl who the FBI has found in Kansas City, and she's from Arkansas. The federal government has no resources to care for these kids, and so they come to nonprofits like ours to say, hey, will you help? So with all the tremendous need and realizing, understanding how difficult this issue is, I look back to days of India where we understood slavery from a sweatshop concept where people are actually literally physically confined to a room. And I began to notice that American students are incredibly vulnerable to all these evils of the demand of sex trafficking driven by pornography. And I thought, where are kids most vulnerable? And it quickly became evident to me that kids are most vulnerable when they are online through social media, through gaming, through chat rooms, through their activities, even sometimes where most schools now hand a student a MacBook or an iPad as a school-issued document to increase their ability to be better educated without having really thought through the consequences. And so tragically, what I'm finding is one of the sweet spots of our ministry is we go into public and private schools and we do school assemblies. And we talk about a whole lot of different things to help kids understand where their exploitations are. And when we get done with assembly, it's amazing because it's, it's a, the, the presentations are biblically based. I can't talk about Jesus or God or spiritual things in a public school setting, but it's almost always I have a Christ-centered student come to me at the end of assembly and say, hey, are, are, are you like a pastor guy or something? Like, I'm like, yeah, she, let's not tell anybody. It's like, just trying to stay covert. He'd say, that was really awesome. That was really cool. The tragic reality is we're finding students coming to us with vulnerabilities that are just overwhelming. A couple of the stories where God has given us favor in the most secular settings, I was in Hoisington, Kansas on November 6th, and we got done with our student assembly. And at the end of the assembly, a girl in seventh grade comes forward and says all the things that that assembly speaker was talking about, these things are happening to me. And she handed over her phone. And the next day, a guy from that community of Hoisington, Kansas, was arrested in jail on $1.3 million bond, all because we stepped forward and went into an assembly setting. On March 1st, I had two girls come to me. Their hands were literally shaking. And they said, all the things that you just got done talking about in the assembly, they said, we were really concerned about one of our friends of ours. You said that a lot of times people will pose as someone younger online. Well, we're convinced our friend is probably talking to some older men. So because the activity was happening on a school-issued laptop, within an hour, we had local law enforcement, cyber crimes, and the sheriff going through that computer. And I was there on a Friday morning, and what they found out was that this young girl was going to meet who she thought were young teenage boys the next morning, Saturday. Um, turns out that they were adult men with nefarious purposes and intents for her. And it, it, it's, it's those moments where it's a very humbling thing to realize that God put us in that craziest, most unheard of setting to talk about a topic um, that most people don't want to even dive into. And yet God knew that I need you there. So go without knowing where you're going. And that's kind of been a theme of our ministry. And um, God just continues to open doors. Our, our primary thing is we go into churches to educate and empower about this issue and schools. 
And then from there, we also do a lot of uh, medical professional trainings and law enforcement training. So it's, it's, a, it's an honor to serve God in this manner. And we see students' lives being touched and changed. Well, Russ, I want to just check in with you here for a second. And, and everything you've described is the kind of thing that was the heart behind our launching this podcast. We call it the uneven road, because though it seems some people in ministry have just smooth sailing and they move from victory to victory, most of us have had some pretty difficult moments. And when you launched 10 years ago, when you were awaiting further orders from God and, and didn't have that clear vision of what was ahead, that is the picture of the uneven road that, that I believe most everyone in ministry experiences, but no one talks about. So yep. kind of looking back over the 10 years, um, what have you seen in terms of the faithfulness of God as he's revealed these things to you like he did to Abram? What has he revealed to you in terms of, of your walk with him? And, and what, what could you share with the audience today? You know, one of the things I looked at from Abraham's life was um, he, his, he constantly put himself in a position. If you look through and you really do a study, several times when God called Abraham, his response was always, here I am. I'm here. And sometimes I felt like, wait, um, God, here I am. I'm still here. Have you forgotten? But deep down, we know that that's not the issue, that he, he doesn't know where we're at. And, and what, what, what I've learned from Abraham's life was that he always positioned himself, but then his, his step of obedience was not just in words, but with action. And so even in the most difficult times, um, sometimes the action was when we launched the ministry was I stepped out of doing, uh, you know, typical church, quote unquote, professional pastoral ministry to finding how am I going to do this very out of the box, unique calling. And one of the things I ended up doing was I, I started working for a company that puts on marathons and half marathons and five Ks. And I would find myself before we had gained the favor with people in the area uh, that I would do presentations network, have meetings kind of Monday through Wednesday. And then typically on a Thursday morning around three o'clock in the morning, I would get in a big old Dodge Ram pickup truck and drive a semi truck trailer all around America from El Paso, clear out to Richmond, Virginia. And we would put on five K's for groups that raise funding to support brain cancer survivors. And I would drive this truck and we would work 18, 20 hours days and hardly stop to eat and hot on city streets, um, not necessarily the safest working conditions, throwing around 60 pound um, sandbags and very frustrated going, okay, God, I'm doing this work to pay the bills so we can do this unique ministry you called us to. And I know when you told Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac, there's this mountain over there. I'll, sh I'll show you where it's at when you get there. And then Isaac says, dad, where's the sacrifice? Oh, don't worry. God will take care of it. Abraham always responded in word and then action. So we, we, we walked through some amazingly difficult roads, uh, just intangible things. Let me, but let me give, let me give you and your listeners a couple stories of encouragement because God has never failed us. Amen. And so I was, I had an experience where I was, I bought an I bought an old vehicle from my dad years ago. It was a 1999 Pontiac Grand Am, and I was sitting on a road, and somebody was texting and ran in the back of me 45 miles an hour. And it was just kind of at a moment where the work schedule was really picking up and was going to make some decent money to support our family. And all of a sudden, I've got this back injury. The, the, that accident kind of created some issues with the car and things with this old car went from bad to worse. And so then all of a sudden, my dad is near death. And I'm using this old car to make trips back and forth to where they lived. And on one of the trips after dad had started doing a little bit better, was back home. God miraculously touched him. Now I'm literally at their home and the car dies. Like there's, there's nothing left of this car. And so it was take it to 
the junkyard and give my 20 bucks for it and walk away. And now I'm not sure how to get back home, a three hour drive to where I'm home. So my wife has the other vehicle and um, she's got the girls. And so I'm I'm about to call my wife to tell her that, you know, Hey, um, I'm gonna have to rent something to get home. The car and she is literally calling me at the time to tell me the fridge has died. And I'm okay. So uh, it was, it was fascinating because, uh, my mom and dad, uh, the neighbor right behind them, they were selling a 2008 Toyota Camry, great vehicle, leather, moonroof, all that fun stuff. And they were asking $9,000 for it. It may as well have been 9 million. It didn't matter. And I went over and test drove it anyway, just to kill some time in the afternoon. And a guy like me said, I'll, I'll drop the price of 6,000. It didn't matter. I mean, it may as well have been 60,000. It just, it didn't matter. And so I was like, fine. And so, um, my mom needed me to run an errand. And so I took their car. She calls me while I'm running this errand. She stayed home with my dad and she's crying. And I immediately think something's happened to my dad. Mm. And my mom starts crying. And, the, and I go, mom, are, is dad okay? And I finally get her comment. She said, no, no, dad's fine. Everything. She said, she said, Russ, somebody bought the car. I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? I don't care if somebody bought the car. Is dad okay? I didn't have money to buy the car anyway. I don't care. Well, so long story short, she had just received a phone call. And the history is back in the days before my mom and dad became missionaries to India. They were pastoring at a church in Marysville, Washington. And there was a couple who were board members of their church who retired and lived in Colorado. And that morning, they both woke up and in their devotional time together, they both had the weirdest looks on their faces and they stopped and they said, do you feel like God's telling you something? Yeah. Um, do, do you think, what's God telling you? And so they, they were both hesitant to approach each other. So long story short, God told both of them they were supposed to buy a car for Russ and his wife and kids. And they had no clue about this. They didn't know, really know where we were. And so they called my parents and say, this is really awkward, but we feel like God told us this morning that we're supposed to help Russ and his family. And it's the weirdest thing, but we feel like we're supposed to give them $6,000 for a car, but we don't know what that looks like. It's not a ministry donation. It's just for them personally to buy this car. And so now mom is calling me crying because of God's provision. They wire the money. I go pay this guy the next day. I get in the car. I drive home. An amazing vehicle. Nicest car I ever had in my life. I pull in the driveway and now we've got to go get a refrigerator because everything's melting in the house. We have no, we have, right. So the refrigerator issue. I run in, put my stuff down as we are driving to Home Depot because we heard they had a couple sales on some old fridges. A person sends me a text message and says, this is the most awkward thing ever. I don't know how to approach you with this, but I was praying this morning and God told me I'm supposed to buy you and your family a refrigerator. Is that a need? Wow. I grew up hearing these stories as a missionary kid in India, you know, kind of the, hey, pith helmet going through the Amazon. Look how God provided for these poverty stricken missionaries and then find ourselves living in Kansas City um, with tangible needs going, who lives like this today? Who? And, and, and yet, um, God said, go without knowing where you're going. And don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So those are the kinds of stories where God has provided intangible needs. And then there's been the still small voice of God saying, this is a direction to go in for this year. And sometimes the doors have opened wide to be in front of senators and members of the house of representative testifying in hearings. Other years, it's been really heavy on medical professional traits. Other years, it's been a lot of law enforcement influence. Other years, it's been um, within the community and business leaders trying to engage them. But what's been consistent is the hub of this is God's people and what we're able to do and accomplish in churches and then particularly in schools, because that's where our kids are. So we've got a big vision. Our goal is to try to be in every school every year throughout Missouri and Kansas, um, providing this message. And it's been amazing to see how those doors have been opening. And the, the, all of the resources um, have not come through. And every time we commit to say, yes, we'll go to a school, and it's a five-hour drive away, and I may be gone for a couple weeks or a couple days, um, with overnights and all the different things of presentations to speak to adults before we speak to the students and then the follow-up and all these things. And we'll make a commitment to a school and we have go without knowing where you're going. And every single time, somehow when it feels like, Oh my word, the knife is up. I'm about to stab the dream and the dream's over. Um, God says, look how I've provided. And we're doing our best to say, God, throughout this process, here I am. 
And when you speak and you open a door, even though it seems like it doesn't make sense, the posture is obedience of our words first and then action will follow through. And we're seeing God do some pretty crazy, cool, amazing things. Well, Russ, it's amazing to talk with you and hear the story of your journey. It's definitely the uneven road that you've been walking, but uh, to see God's faithfulness and to understand what he's done for you and your family, it's, it's pretty encouraging. Just as we close, I am pretty much convinced that there's somebody today who's willing to throw in the towel this weekend. They've given it all they've got. They've done whatever they know to do. And it's kind of like Sunday is the deadline for them. What would you say to that uh, person this morning, or this uh, afternoon as they listen to this? So if it's a person in ministry, particularly, I would say I'm confident that there's a spiritual mile marker somewhere in their life of an encouraging moment where God stepped in and provided. And I would encourage them to go back to that memory and then to look forward to the faithfulness of God that he never changes. And he's always the same yesterday, today and forever. You know, I, I, I look at I look at the story of Abraham and Isaac as motivation and teaching for how they handled it. And then, and then I have a crazy story of cowboy boots that are my reminder. When we went to India, I was four years old. And when we went to India in those days, you didn't just go to a mall and buy clothes. You didn't just go buy shoes. Everything had to be made. Anything you wanted had to be shipped in 50 pound barrels on a ship and took eight months to get to you from the United States. And so I had simple childlike faith. I was about to have my fifth birthday and I'd grown out of my favorite cowboy boots. And I just knew I was going to get more cowboy boots, not understanding how difficult of a thing that was. My parents are trying to kind of um, help me understand that, that might not happen because they had no way to know. And yet in Eastern Washington, a farmer wakes up in the morning and says, I feel like I'm supposed to buy cowboy boots for this family that came through our church that our church supports as missionaries. I don't even, we don't even know where they're at. We don't, I don't even know how old the kid is. I don't even know what kind of boots to get him, but I just feel like I'm supposed to go buy cowboy boots and goes and buys cowboy boots. And miraculously they arrive on my birthday within weeks instead of months. And I look back at that and I go, if, if, if God could speak to a farmer in Eastern Washington about a five-year-old blonde haired, blue eyed boy living in a part of India where the family has no running water, no electricity. And he cares about cowboy boots that I'm pretty sure God cares about that person who says I'm ready to throw the towel in this weekend. God knows where you're at. He sees you. And I would encourage that person to simply say, even if, even if, even if it's a little bit in anger, God can deal with our anger. And it might be, Instead of like Abraham was, here I am, excited, anything, it might be, here I am, God, where are you? I'm still here. I'm still being faithful. I'm still walking through this. And my devotional time today feels like I was talking to the wall. I sense no emotion. And I would encourage people in those moments when you don't sense God in your feelings, feel him in your faith. And it's the faith of Abraham that says, in words first, then in action. And for someone ready to throw the towel on this weekend, God, here I am, and it might be angry, but say the next step is whatever it is you're calling, whatever the next thing is, whatever that next meeting is, whatever that next email is you need to send, whatever that next thing is, do that. Well, Russ, it's been exciting and uh, incredibly interesting to be with you today. Again, your ministry is the Stop Trafficking Project. Where would people go to find more about it? StopTraffickingProject.com. Hey, that's pretty simple. Well, yep. Russ, new old friends are hard to make, so I really appreciate our friendship and uh, look forward to having you come back on the uneven road again. Bless you, Bill. Welcome to this week's podcast of The Uneven Road with Dr. Bill Hennessy. As leaders, not all of us are called to the easy places. The roads we're called to travel can be really uneven. Building on his rich experience as a pastor, missionary, educator, and leadership coach, 
Bill brings encouragement, conversation, and new ideas to help you better communicate Christ's hope to the people you are called to serve. Well, happy Friday, everybody. This is Dr. Bill Hennessy with The Uneven Road, and I'm here today with Russ Tuttle, who is the president of the Stop Trafficking Project. Uh, his mission is to combat human trafficking. He's based out of the uh, greater Kansas City area, reaches out to the Midwest, but also has outreach in India, and he's working with Awareness KC to try and stem the tide of human trafficking in that region. So, Russ, it's great to have you with us, and uh, you have kind of an unusual calling. Yeah, you know, so my background is I grew up in India as a missionary kid and didn't really sense a call to full-time ministry when I came back home to the United States to go to college. I actually thought I was going to be an architect and the Bible school I was attending, I was three weeks into my freshman year, and I don't even remember who was speaking or what the altar response was, but it was one of those generic, hey, if you want to give your all to God and let him use you as you see fit, then come on down here. And I went down because that was me, even though I hadn't had a calling to ministry. And God gave me a very vivid call to ministry for 90 minutes. I just wept. And in my, I actually had what I would call a vision for 90 minutes, I saw lines of people walking past me. I was standing between a huge doorway right in the frame. And I was waving people through this massive door with urgency. And all I could see was with clarity, their eyes. I could see people from every walk, every background And while their bodies were clearly walking, that was not clear. What was clear was their eyes. So my parents were in India as missionaries. I was in Seattle, Kirkland, Washington area um, in college. And so in those days, the way you communicated to India was you actually wrote a letter and licked the stamp and mailed it. And it took about six weeks to get there. And um, you got a response back six weeks later, maybe seven weeks later. And so I told my parents, I'm called to ministry and started a journey where I figured because of all the years I'd lived in India that I automatically mean God must want me to go back to India to be a missionary. That has to be it because I speak the language. I know the culture leadership there wants me to come back. And so I, God, thank you for calling me back to India. And and yes, so won't bore you with the details. That wasn't his plan. (laughs) And so did, did several, a couple decades of um, different, different ministry and churches and things. And, and uh, had, had, uh, all different kinds of experiences, everything from working with youth to adults to um, every different kind of leader you can work with, every different kind of mentor, some good, some bad, some indifferent, all those things. And then, and then I find myself in 2009 with this sense of just a complete different something was about to happen. And we couldn't quite figure it out. My wife and I were trying to go, what, what's God doing? And, and thought, well, maybe, maybe now this is the release. Maybe now this is India again after all these years. And sensed in my heart that that wasn't it, but wasn't sure. We had, had some friends come visit and said, you know, Russ, I just really feel like you're, you're about to launch into a new ministry, something you've never dreamt of before. And it's going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done. And nobody's going to understand it or why you're doing it. And I was like, well, I don't want to talk to you about this. What kind of a friend are you? Like, take my hamburger back. I shouldn't have barbecued you a burger. Like, what kind of a word is that? And and yet that was exactly the journey that started. And really what happened was an awareness came um, after years of pastoral ministry to kind of grasp the concept of there's something more and that ministry is not just always a title in a church. And all of a sudden I began this realization of um, there's something more. And so I was, I was attending a leadership conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and Francis Chan was the keynote speaker. And before he spoke, he had his daughter come out and play piano. And she played her piano and she got done and everybody clapped because it's Francis Chan's daughter. And besides, she was a great piano player. But then he stopped and he said, I've just become recently aware that there's a tragic reality happening right here in the United States of America where American kids are being sold for sexual purposes against their will. Mm. And all the air got sucked out of Gwinnett Arena in Atlanta, Georgia. And I literally walked out of that 
arena and I went and called my wife and I said, I think I know what we're supposed to do. And it resonated with her. And so long story short, within six weeks, um, we made a huge change and launched out and started a nonprofit. You know, what's interesting is um, I'm certainly uh, not trying to make any type connections with this biblical character. But I, I remember when Abram was called to leave, uh, the writer of Hebrews gives them a powerful commentary about that. And, and in the New Living Translation version, it says he, he went without knowing where he was going. He had a general idea and some general direction, but he didn't know exactly where he was going. And this is really what we have found in our ministry when we launched back in 2009 to begin to combat this issue that we didn't even really understand because I was, I had, a, I had a great concept and understanding from all the years I lived in India that, yeah, the human trafficking is a real thing. And then I was also like probably most Americans would think, okay, it happens in exotic countries over there. Or we understand that the issue of human trafficking and particularly sex trafficking of children, that there's an issue on the southern border where kids are coming across. And it's a way to get them in. But I hadn't really stopped and considered the fact that this happens right here in the United States of America with kids that our kids play soccer with, that they go to school with in, in our churches. So we stepped out in faith and we, we, we didn't really know where we were going. My friend has said, you're going to kind of step out and do this great thing. And, and I, it was almost kind of like, you know, um, when God called Abram, hey, Abram, you know, I know you're 75 years old and you know, you're a little bit set in your ways, but I've got this great thing, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, but there's going to be this amazing promise. And, um, you know, by the way, the way it's going to happen, you're going to have to have a son, but you don't have one. I mean, all these crazy. And but what did Abram do? He, he, he went not knowing where he was going so that we really felt like that's we were launching out. So we launched out. Within two months, I was convinced, number one, either it was the pepperoni pizza that had spoken to me and not God, or we were in for the ride of our lives because absolutely every attack that you could comprehend um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, literally to the house we lived in, the foundation collapsed. Mm. Everything you could imagine as we launched into this new ministry. And so it was kind of like either I've completely missed it. Or this is, we're about to step into something so far beyond anything we can understand. And that's really what's happened. Um, I'm very type A personality. And a couple of the hardest years of my life was to really just dig in and network and have the most frustrating meetings possible with church leaders and secular leaders of every level to try to see if anybody's really paying attention to this issue of what we now call domestic minor sex trafficking, which is American kids protected by American law being brutally exploited in the most nefarious ways possible for sexual purposes. And so diving into that began to realize and understand we have an issue. So I figured if I'm going to, if, if I, if we're going to launch into this from a Christ center perspective, I better know what I'm talking about. And about two months into launching this, I was ready to quit. I really was because the attacks that came were just so overwhelming. I was like, I, I really don't want to deal with this. And it's not cohesive for our family. I don't know how we're going to pay any bills. I mean, on and on, all these things went. And then out of all places, every year, the Department of Justice produces what's called the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons Report. They rate every single country all around the world on a tier system, basing them how they are doing in the role of human trafficking. And I'd never seen this report before. But every single year, I have all the copies, the front cover every single year of this trafficking and persons report, the front cover is all you see are four sets of different eyes. And it took me back to my original calling to ministry way back three weeks into a freshman year at Northwest College, now known as Northwest University. I can still point to the place on the front pew where I cried for hours and stained that, that bench and all of a sudden, everything came full circle. I was like, this, we can't quit this. And every single year around June or July, they released this report. And every single year, it's a new set of eyes. And all you see is the bridge of a nose and set of eyes with absolute clarity. So 
so that's been, we've, we've been at this now 10 years. This is 2019. We launched in 2009 um, specifically to combat domestic matter sex trafficking. So, so in my research and, and, and understanding how are, how are people dealing with from a Christ center perspective? And most people were wanting to start a home. Let's start a home. Let's bring victims in. My wife and I, we knew that is not our calling. That is not my skill set. That is not my personality. And so as we began to do a deep dive into these realities, we began to realize that, listen, American kids are targets by people because tragically, sex trafficking of children in America that we refer to legally as domestic minor sex trafficking. The reason for that is because demand to buy kids for sexual purposes is high. We relocated from Washington State years ago, moved to Kansas City area, and in 2013, Arizona State University conducted a very in-depth research study on 15 cities across America, and Kansas City was one of them. And what they did was they were looking to see how many people in a particular city are online looking to find people to purchase sex from. And Arizona State University's 2013 study ran decoy ads online advertising people to be sold for sexual purposes with a strong focus on we're selling minors. What they found through this study based on people responding and the analytics of this were very, very deep. They, they could tell if someone called from a cell phone, what kind of phone it was, if they text messaged, if they responded through an ad, what they, they responded online through a, an email or all these, all the analytics. And what they found was that in a short time period, 14.5% of the male population over the age of 18 in Kansas City, Missouri, was online looking to purchase sex. So that number represents over 106,000 men in a short time period. Spoke to the demand. Demand is driven by addiction to pornography. We have an absolute tsunami crisis happening in our country today of people addicted to pornography and the numbers inside the church and outside the church tragically don't look that different. So what we have found is that demand is high. Increasingly the images of pornography online or of younger and younger children, increasingly almost on a daily basis, we see high profile people being caught and arrested for child pornography issues and one of the challenges that this, this comes to is, is, is every time I stand up to speak about this issue, I sense the spiritual warfare because we're going against a countercultural, it's a countercultural message every time we stand to speak. So we understand um, that we now have domestic minor sex trafficking where American kids are being sold for nefarious purposes, bought and sold. The reason for that is because demand is high. And from a scriptural and biblical and Christ-centered perspective, we understand ultimately this issue is sin. Ultimately, we're dealing with the depravity of mankind to do the kinds of things that they are doing to children at younger and younger and younger ages. Some of the names of websites that I could name where people go and they file share horrific images of what they're doing to infants and on and on it goes. It can only be described as Romans talks about the depravity of mankind. So when we step into the most secular settings possible to deal with these issues, and that deals with perhaps I'm standing in front of a Senate hearing in the state of Missouri testifying about why pornography should be declared a public health crisis, or whether I'm in a public school setting talking to several hundred students about the role of social media in their exploitation, or whether I'm training law enforcement professionals of what they need to look for or medical professionals, or maybe I'm standing in a church on a Sunday morning delivering a biblically-based message of encouragement and yet also opening their eyes to the role that pornography plays in the exploitation of vulnerability of our students that leads them sometimes into the worst-case scenarios of domestic minor sex trafficking where kids are victims. All these things can become so overwhelming that sometimes you just go, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. And then I think about Abraham 25 years after God said, go, I'm not going to really tell you where you're going, but it's going to be amazing. And Abraham goes, 
over 25 years. And he's now had the name changed from Abram to Abraham. And now God says, kill, kill the promise, kill your promise, kill, kill your only son, Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice to me. And one of the things that my wife and I have found over the 10 years of what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice for this calling? Because it's a tremendously unique calling. It's an overwhelming calling. It's a calling where um, similar to years in pastoral ministry, when you got done with the busyness of Sunday day and evening ministry, you want to resign on Monday morning and quit. And then you go to your staff meeting and you start over and you get re-energized. Those moments that in, in this ministry were called to my home office out of my basement, anywhere that there's a computer or laptop or coffee shop, that's your office because we're surrounded by people in need constantly. And we've decided, we've made a, a specific decision not to establish brick and mortar offices not to establish brick and mortar um, places where people would gather and congregate because those resources need to be put into people where their actual literal, physical, tangible needs can be met in the immediacy of a moment. And sometimes that's as simple as we have to pay for a bus ride to get a young 12 year old girl who the FBI has found in Kansas city. And she's from Arkansas. The federal government has no resources to care for these kids. And so they come to nonprofits like ours to say, Hey, Will you help? So with all the tremendous need and realizing, understanding how difficult this issue is, I look back to days of India where we understood slavery from a sweatshop concept where people are actually literally physically confined to a room. And I began to notice that American students are incredibly vulnerable to all these evils of the demand of sex trafficking driven by pornography. And I thought, where are kids most vulnerable? And it quickly became evident to me that kids are most vulnerable when they are online through social media, through gaming, through chat rooms, through their activities, even sometimes where most schools now hand a student a MacBook or an iPad as a school-issued document to increase their ability to be better educated without having really thought through the consequences. And so tragically, what I'm finding is one of the sweet spots of our ministry is we go into public and private schools and we do school assemblies. And we talk about a whole lot of different things to help kids understand where their exploitations are. And when we get done with assembly, it's amazing because it's, it's a, the, the presentations are biblically based. I can't talk about Jesus or God or spiritual things in a public school setting, but it's almost always I have a Christ-centered student come to me at the end of assembly and say, hey, are, are, are you like a pastor guy or something? Like, I'm like, yeah, sh- let's not tell anybody. It's like, just kind of stay covert. He's like, that was really awesome. That was really cool. The tragic reality is we're finding students coming to us with vulnerabilities that are just overwhelming. A couple of the stories where God has given us favor in the most secular settings, I was in Hoisington, Kansas on November 6th, and we got done with our student assembly. And at the end of the assembly, a girl in seventh grade comes forward and says all the things that that assembly speaker was talking about, these things are happening to me. And she handed over her phone. And the next day, a guy from that community of Hoisington, Kansas, was arrested in jail on $1.3 million bond. All because we stepped forward and went into an assembly setting. On March 1st, I had two girls come to me. Their hands were literally shaking. And they said, all the things that you just got done talking about in the assembly, they said, we were really concerned about one of our friends of ours. You said that a lot of times people will pose as someone younger online. Well, we're convinced our friend is probably talking to some older men. So because the activity was happening on a school issued laptop within an hour, we had local law enforcement, cyber crimes, and the sheriff going through that computer. And I was there on a Friday morning. And what they found out was that this young girl was going to meet who she thought were young teenage boys the next morning, Saturday. Um, Turns out that they were adult men with nefarious purposes and intents for her. And it's, it's those moments where it's a very humbling thing to realize that God put us in that craziest, most unheard of setting to talk about a topic um, that most people don't want to even dive into. And yet God knew that, I need you there. So go without knowing where you're going. And that's kind of been a theme of our ministry. And um, God just continues to open doors. Our our primary thing is we go into churches, educate and empower about this issue and schools. And then from there, we also do a lot of uh, medical professional trainings and law enforcement training. So it's, it's, it's an honor to serve God in this manner. And we see students' lives being touched and changed. 
Well, Russ, I want to just check in with you here for a second. And, and everything you've described is the kind of thing that was the heart behind our launching this podcast. We call it the uneven road, because though it seems some people in ministry have just smooth sailing and they move from victory to victory, most of us have had some pretty difficult moments and when you launched 10 years ago, when you were awaiting further orders from God and, and didn't have that clear vision of what was ahead, that is the picture of the uneven road that, that I believe most everyone in ministry experiences, but no one talks about. So yep. kind of looking back over the 10 years, um, what have you seen in terms of the faithfulness of God as he's revealed these things to you like he did to Abram? What has he revealed to you in terms of, of your walk with him? And, and what, what could you share with the audience today? You know, one of the things I looked at from Abraham's life was um, he, his, he constantly put himself in a position. If you look through and you really do a study several times when God called Abraham, his response was always, here I am. I'm here. And sometimes I felt like, wait, um, God, here I am. I'm still here. Have you forgotten? But deep down, we know that that's not the issue that he, he doesn't know where we're at. And, and what, what, what I've learned from Abraham's life was that he always positioned himself, but then his, his step of obedience was not just in words, but with action. And so even in the most difficult times, um, sometimes the action was when we launched the ministry was I stepped out of doing, uh, you know, typical church, quote unquote, professional pastoral ministry to finding how am I going to do this very out of the box, unique calling. And one of the things I ended up doing was I, I, I started working for a company that puts on marathons and half marathons and five Ks. And I would find myself before we had gained the favor with people in the area uh, that I would do presentations, network, have meetings kind of Monday through Wednesday. And then typically on a Thursday morning around three o'clock in the morning, I would get in a big old Dodge Ram pickup truck and drive a semi truck trailer all around America from El Paso, clear out to Richmond, Virginia. And we would put on five K's for groups that raise funding to support brain cancer survivors. And I would drive this truck and we would work 18, 20 hours days and hardly stop to eat and hot on city streets. Um, not necessarily the safest working conditions, throwing around 60 pound um, sandbags and very frustrated going, okay, God, I'm doing this work to pay the bills so we can do this unique ministry you called us to. And I know when you told Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. There's this mountain over there. I'll, sh I'll show you where it's at when you get there. And then Isaac says, dad, where's the sacrifice? Oh, don't worry. God will take care of it. Abraham always responded in word and then action. So we, we, we walked through some amazingly difficult roads, uh, just intangible things. Let me, but let me give, let me give you and your listeners a couple stories of encouragement because God has never failed us. Amen. And so I was, I had an experience where I was, I, I bought an, I bought an old vehicle from my dad years ago. It was a 1999 Pontiac Grand Am. And I was sitting on a road and somebody was texting and ran into the back of me 45 miles an hour. And it was just kind of at a moment where the work schedule was really picking up and was going to make some decent money to support our family. And all of a sudden, I've got this back injury. The, the, that accident kind of created some issues with the car and things with this old car went from bad to worse. And so then all of a sudden, my dad is near death. And I'm using this old car to make trips back and forth to where they lived. And on one of the trips after dad had started doing a little bit better, was back home. God miraculously touched him. Now I'm literally at their home and the car dies. Like there's, there's nothing left of this car. And so it was take it to the junkyard and give my 20 bucks for it and walk away. And now I'm not sure how to get back home, a three hour drive to where I'm home. So my wife has the other vehicle and um, she's got the girls and, 
So I, I'm, I'm about to call my wife to tell her that, you know, Hey, um, I'm gonna have to rent something to get home. The car. And she is literally calling me at the time to tell me the fridge has died. And I'm okay. So, uh, it was, it was fascinating because, uh, my mom and dad, uh, the neighbor right behind them, they were selling a 2008 Toyota Camry, great vehicle, leather, moonroof, all that fun stuff. And they were asking $9,000 for it. It may as well have been 9 million. It didn't matter. And I went over and test drove it anyway, just to kill some time in the afternoon. And a guy like me said, I'll, I'll drop the price of 6,000. It didn't matter. I mean, it may as well have been 60,000. It just, it didn't matter. And so I was like, fine. And so um, my mom needed me to run an errand. And so I took their car. She calls me while I'm running this errand. She stayed home with my dad and she's crying. And I immediately think something's happened to my dad. Mm. And my mom starts crying and, the, and I go, mom, are you, is dad okay? And I finally get her call me. She said, no, no, dad's fine. Everything. She said, she said, Russ, somebody bought the car. I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? I don't care if somebody bought the car. Is dad okay? I didn't have money to buy the car anyway. I don't care. Well, so long story short, she had just received a phone call and the history is back in the days before my mom and dad became missionaries to India. They were pastoring at a church in Marysville, Washington. And there was a couple who were board members of their church who retired and lived in Colorado. And that morning they both woke up and in their devotional time together, they both had the weirdest looks on their faces and they stopped and they said, do you feel like God's telling you something? Yeah. Um, do, do you think what's God telling you? And so they, they were both hesitant to approach each other. So long story short, God told both of them they were supposed to buy a car for Russ and his wife and kids. And they had no clue about this. They didn't know, really know where we were. And so they called my parents and say, this is really awkward, but we feel like God told us this morning that we're supposed to help Russ and his family. And it's the weirdest thing, but we feel like we're supposed to give them $6,000 for a car, but we don't know what that looks like. It's not a ministry donation. It's just for them personally to buy this car. And so now mom is calling me crying because of God's provision. They wire the money. I go pay this guy the next day. I get in the car, I drive home. An amazing vehicle. Nicest car I'd ever had in my life. I pull in the driveway and now we've got to go get a refrigerator because everything's melting in the house. We have no, we have, right. So the refrigerator issue. I run in, put my stuff down as we are driving to Home Depot because we heard they had a couple sales on some old fridges. A person sends me a text message and says, this is the most awkward thing ever. I don't know how to approach you with this, but I was praying this morning and God told me I'm supposed to buy you and your family a refrigerator. Is that a need? Wow. I grew up hearing these stories as a missionary kid in India, you know, kind of the, hey, pith helmet going through the Amazon, look how God provided for these poverty stricken missionaries. And then find ourselves living in Kansas City um, with tangible needs going, who lives like this today? Who? And, and, and yet um, God said, go without knowing where you're going and don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. So those are the kinds of stories where God has provided intangible needs. And then there's been the still small voice of God saying, this is a direction to go in for this year. And sometimes the doors have opened wide to be in front of senators and members of the House of Representatives testifying in hearings. Other years, it's been really heavy on medical professional traits. Other years, it's been a lot of law enforcement influence. Other years, it's been... Um, within the community and business leaders trying to engage them. But what's been consistent is the hub of this is God's people and what we're able to do and accomplish in churches and then particularly in schools because that's where our kids are. So we've got a big vision. Our goal is to try to be in every school every year throughout Missouri and Kansas um, providing this message. And it's been amazing to see how those doors have been opening and the, the, all of the resources um, have not come through. And every time we commit to say, yes, we'll go to a school and it's a five hour drive away. And I may be gone for a couple weeks or a couple days, um, with overnights and all the different things of presentations to speak to adults before we speak to the students and then the follow up and all these things. And we'll make a commitment to a school and we have go without knowing where you're going. And every single time, somehow when it feels like, oh my word, the knife is up, I'm about to stab the dream and the dream's over, um, God says, look how I've provided. And we're doing our best to say, God, throughout this process, here I am. And when you speak and you open a door, even though it seems like it doesn't make sense, the posture is obedience of our words first and then action will follow through. And we're seeing God do some pretty crazy, cool, amazing things. 
Well, Russ, it's amazing to talk with you and hear the story of your journey. It's definitely the uneven road that you've been walking, but uh, to see God's faithfulness and to understand what he's done for you and your family, it's, it's pretty encouraging. Just as we close, I am pretty much convinced that there's somebody today who's willing to throw in the towel this weekend. They've given it all they've got. They've done whatever they know to do. And it's kind of like Sunday is the deadline for them. What would you say to that uh, person this or this uh, afternoon as they listen to this? So if it's a person in ministry, particularly, I would say I'm confident that there's a spiritual mile marker somewhere in their life of an encouraging moment where God stepped in and provided. And I would encourage them to go back to that memory and then to look forward to the faithfulness of God that he never changes. And he's always the same yesterday, today and forever. You know, I, I, I look at, I look at the story of Abraham and Isaac as motivation and teaching for how they handled it. And then, and then I have a crazy story of cowboy boots that are my reminder. When we went to India, I was four years old and when we went to India in those days, you didn't just go to a mall and buy clothes. You didn't just go buy shoes. Everything had to be made. Anything you wanted had to be shipped in 50 pound barrels on a ship and took eight months to get to you from the United States. And so I had simple childlike faith. I was about to have my fifth birthday and I'd grown out of my favorite cowboy boots. And I just knew I was going to get more cowboy boots, not understanding how difficult of a thing that was. My parents are trying to kind of um, help me understand that, that might not happen because they had no way to know. And yet in Eastern Washington, a farmer wakes up in the morning and says, I feel like I'm supposed to buy cowboy boots for this family that came through our church that our church supports as missionaries. I don't even, we don't even know where they're at. We don't, I don't even know how old the kid is. I don't even know what kind of boots to get him, but I just feel like I'm supposed to go buy cowboy boots and goes and buys cowboy boots. And miraculously they arrive on my birthday within weeks instead of months. And I look back at that and I go, if, if, if God could speak to a farmer in Eastern Washington, about a five-year-old blonde haired, blue eyed boy, living in a part of India where the family has no running water, no electricity. And he cares about cowboy boots that I'm pretty sure God cares about that person who says, I'm ready to throw the towel in this weekend. God knows where you're at. He sees you. And I would encourage that person to simply say, even if, even if, even if it's a little bit in anger, God can deal with our anger. And it might be, Instead of like Abraham was, here I am, excited, anything, it might be, here I am, God, where are you? I'm still here. I'm still being faithful. I'm still walking through this. And my devotional time today feels like I was talking to the wall. I sense no emotion. And I would encourage people in those moments when you don't sense God in your feelings, feel him in your faith. And it's the faith of Abraham that says, in words first, then in action. And for someone ready to throw the towel on this weekend, God, here I am, and it might be angry, but say the next step is whatever it is you're calling, whatever the next thing is, whatever that next meeting is, whatever that next email is you need to send, whatever that next thing is, do that. Well, Russ, it's been exciting and uh, incredibly interesting to be with you today. Again, your ministry is the Stop Trafficking Project. Where would people go to find more about it? StopTraffickingProject.com. Hey, that's pretty simple. Well, yep. Russ, new old friends are hard to make, so I really appreciate our friendship and uh, look forward to having you come back on the uneven road again. Bless you, Bill. Bill.